The Hearing. Twill Takeover. Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law. If you have the opportunity to report to a woman or an Indigenous person, please recognize how critical your support of that person in that role is going to be to their success. If you report to someone that fits that identity profile and you are not supportive of them, you will be a part of the problem. Welcome back to the Twill Takeover of the Hearing. This is a special series of The Hearing where we are talking all things women's leadership in partnership with Twill for Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law, uh, which is a group uh, here at Thomson Reuters that is dedicated to advocating for cultural change in the legal industry and uh, addressing some of the structural barriers that, that women face. In today's episode, I spoke with Makalika Nahulua'a who is currently the executive director of the Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation. She's also currently the president of the National Native American Bar Association. Makalika has had really a a fascinating and varied career already. She graduated from Columbia Law School and became an accomplished intellectual property lawyer. She eventually joined Microsoft and became their head of trademarks, among other roles there. She has long been an advocate for Indigenous people and other members of marginalized communities. And about 18 months ago, she really put that work at the center of her professional life. Um, And she took on this role that she currently has at the Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation. I felt like I could have kept talking to Makalika for hours. Um, There's really something for everyone, I think, in today's conversation. She's an example of of true leadership, I think, for women and for Indigenous people. It was obvious in speaking to her how deeply she cares, you know, not only about representing the communities that she is a part of, which she does very well, but also she cares about making the legal profession better, full stop, Um, you know, more relevant, more active in society. Um, And I thought she had some great advice for everyone on how we can do that. So I found the conversation fascinating. I learned so much, and I hope that you all enjoy it as much as I did. The Hearing Twill Takeover. Hello, Makalika. Aloha. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Aloha, Janelle. Thank you. I thought we could start just, you know, just to set the scene a little bit for listeners, because uh, we're not in the same room, sadly. If you could just tell us a little bit about where you are joining us today from. Uh, I am sitting at my home office. I think you and I have a bit of a time difference. So it's the start of my day. And I am located in the beautiful Paloa Valley that is just north of downtown Honolulu on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. Lovely. Yes, I know it's an early start for you, at least maybe for, for recording a podcast. So we certainly appreciate it. So this series of the hearing um, is focused on women legal leaders um, and issues around advancing women in the legal profession. Makalika, you are an incredibly accomplished lawyer. Um, You're a leader of several organizations. You have all this deep experience working in, in big tech in the area of intellectual property. You work and lead on behalf of indigenous rights. You're an advocate for marginalized people in the legal profession more broadly. Um, There's so much really that I'm looking forward to exploring with you today in the time that we have. But I wanted to start really just by asking you to tell us a little bit about your your background and your roots. Sure. I love that question. That's really common for Indigenous people to sort of start that way. And I'll do a blend of sort of the traditional and also a little bit about Um, building on that traditional sort of a contemporary introduction. So starting with the traditional, uh, she said, my name is Makalika Destarte Nahulova'a. My parents are Bert Allen Nahulova'a, and he was born in Spokane, Washington. His family originally comes from Ka'u. It's a south of Kona portion of the island of Hawaii, here in Hawaii. Um, And he also has ancestral roots um, from China by way of immigrants that came to Hawaii. And on my mother's side, my mother's name is Margaret Kaavagalis, and she was born on the island of Molokai. And that's where most of her family still lives today. But our Mo'olalo, our story, 
uh, tells us that part of that family line also comes from the island of Kauai. And my mother uh, was raised actually shortly after she was born. She, raised for, she was raised for some time on Molokai, but was adopted by a great aunt under the traditional Hawaiian adoption system called Tanai. And she was raised here on the island of Oahu, which is where my father's uh, grandparents also raised their family since about the 30s. So that is where I come from. I was born uh, in the state of Georgia. Uh, my parents met here in Hawaii, but they both had a very different experience. And long story short, um, my dad is a diaspora Hawaiian. He was born in Washington, raised in the Air Force, and then met my mom here. So um, that is a long introduction, but that is normal for indigenous introductions. And that just gives you a sense of place um, and people. And that's really important for indigenous people when we introduce ourselves. Uh, and then I'll just say, you know, where I come from, my roots, I mean, that, of course, is the start and that covers hundreds of years of roots. Uh, in my lifetime, I was very lucky to uh, have a real pan-American experience. And I think that's important, too, when I think about my perspective and um, the way that I invest my time and energy and talent in my work. Um, so, you know, Hawaiian people have this has been a melting pot here, this state for a long time. And uh, I have cousins that are blended ancestry from all over the world, which is such a gift. And when I was born in Georgia, my parents were living with a portion of my family that was both Hawaiian and African-American. And so the beginning of my life, I was raised in a black home with my Williams Ohana. And that was a short period of time, but as I've grown and gotten the opportunity to learn more about you know, childhood development, you know, that was a short start of my life, but it was the time where apparently just millions and millions and millions of neurons are being, um, you know, ignited in the brain. And so I, I strongly feel like that start has left a lasting impression. And then my family traveled a bit and I was um, educated mostly in the Southwest. So, you know, grade school and even through my, my undergraduate, I'm a, I'm a Sun Devil. I studied math and computer science at Arizona State University. And in that portion of my life, I rarely saw a Hawaiian that wasn't my parents or my brothers and sisters, but my friends and the people that I felt had common experience with me were uh, usually uh, uh, Latin American or you know Mexican American probably predominantly, but also of course Central American. Um, growing up in a border state in a um, uh, area where agriculture was really the dominant industry and also the indigenous people of Arizona. So uh, my experience has been deeply Hawaiian, deeply indigenous, but also deeply all people of color in this country. Um, and I think that's important. Yeah, that's an incredible story uh, with so many different threads in it. You mentioned that, you, you know, you didn't encounter a lot of native Hawaiians when you were in the Southwest. Were there ways for you to stay connected to Native Hawaiian culture, you know, outside of your family? I, I imagine that's a challenge for the diaspora. It totally is, but which is probably similar in a lot of ways to all diasporas. I mean, diasporas are usually caused by some traumatic event. That doesn't mean that everybody who moves is experiencing trauma, but, you know, Hawaii currently has... Uh, more than half of Hawaiians, according to the last census, are now no longer living in Hawaii. And a lot of the stories of Hawaiians um, leaving the homelands and going to other places, predominantly the continent in the U.S., uh, it there's there's things in there that don't feel like agency, don't feel like empowerment, right? Um, and uh, there's some hubs. So when I graduated from law school, uh, you know, finding ways. I, I became a parent in law school, which was such a good decision. And um, and I was inspired by another woman of color who went first, and I will always credit her for that. I'm so lucky for her. But um, yeah, so when we graduated, uh, it was really important that that be easier for my daughter, for me, because it was really hard. Uh, you you know, I tell people you can you can maintain an identity in your home. Your home is is where you're you are born, and your identity is uh, sort of nurtured but it's really hard to practice a culture as just a single family. So finding ways to support not just individuals to be successful, but for them to take part in communities that are meaningful for them is a big part of my advocacy and the example I try to lead in the decisions that I make uh, as an indigenous person, as a person of color. And I think in the legal profession, that's something that's not getting talked about enough um, in white collar work, that's not getting talked about enough 
um, because you know, right now is such a special moment. Uh, you know, one of the few silver linings from the pandemic is that it taught people a whole host of jobs that can be done without pulling people out of their communities, without um, forcing those communities to suffer the brain drain that that causes, and also the disconnect and the loss of culture that that causes. And that aspect of what remote work can mean is not being talked about nearly enough. That is really interesting um, and something that I had not thought about. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about remote work as it you know, relates to working parents and you know, providing more flexibility along that line. But in terms of allowing people t- t- to have more of that preservation of culture and identity, it, that's, a, that's a fascinating point. I do want to jump into a little later um, some of those issues around you know, maintaining authenticity and, and giving people space in, in the workplace. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit before we get there um, about your career. Um, you graduated from Columbia Law School, I believe, in 2010. Um, so you're at this point in your career where um, you know you hold senior positions. You're a leader in a number of organizations. You have deep experience, um, but you're you you have you know a lot still ahead of you too. I think it's fair to say you're probably at the the midpoint of your career in some ways. And yet you've already done um, an incredible amount of different things. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit with you um, and maybe just start at the beginning with, you know, um, what brought you to the law and then where did you start your career once once you did graduate? Sure. I really had to stumble my way towards the law. You know, I think setting a historical timeline is always helpful because I'm not sure that the history that paints dominant culture and our government in a negative light gets a fair amount of play so that people can fairly put into context what they see, experience, and how to find new people that they meet who have different backgrounds than them. So I'll just do like a brief history lesson because I really think it, it does help. So uh, the Kingdom of Hawaii was an independent, internationally recognized sovereign nation until 1893, which was not that long ago. And so generationally, Native Hawaiians experienced this deeply traumatic event with the coup d'etat that was you know, led between American businessmen and help from the U.S. Navy without authorization from the federal government uh, to take over the country. And so at that point, you know, 1893, we're talking about very close to the turn of the century. So when you think about my experience today in 2023, my great-grandmother who passed away when I was in college and she was definitely the matriarch of our family until she passed. She, on my dad's side, I'll just focus on that one as an example. Uh, you know, she passed away very uh, lucky to live over a hundred years old. And so she could recall seeing our queen still in a carriage moving around the city of Honolulu. And so you think about how short that period of time is, right? So my grandmother, I think she was born just a few years after 1893. So she was not necessarily there at that traumatic moment, but she was definitely born and grew up in a world where Hawaiians were still figuring out how to react and adapt to this deeply traumatic event and being told to stop being Hawaiians and all the things that for hundreds and hundreds and from our perspective, thousands of years, although there's always this debate, archaeology has a very fraught relationship with indigenous people. Both sides of my family have experienced the trauma of this disruption. And it's a violent disruption. It's an emotionally abusive disruption. Uh, and it really forced us to adapt. And we're continuing to adapt because that kind of change, you don't adapt overnight. Um, you survive, but you don't totally figure out how to reconcile that change and and adjust your worldview and ethics and all of those things um, that quickly. That takes a long time. So for me, you know, and then you think about the legal profession and what is the role of the legal profession? I mean, no doubt about it, we need indigenous lawyers because, you know, that's a famous quote, right? We are a country of laws. Uh, so figuring out how to advocate within this system is super important. And at the same time, I mean, you mentioned my, uh, I graduated from Columbia Law School, which was a gift and a blessing. And it's opened a lot of doors for me and it taught me so much. And, you know, my goal is to be a, a active member of our alumni association at the same time, just as an example, 
the person who wrote the bayonet constitution, which in our history is very famous, it was basically put before one of our kings at gunpoint and it disenfranchised Hawaiians and Asian Americans, or at the time Asian Hawaiians, from the vote. And that constitution was written by a Columbia Law School grad. So figuring out one first just about that career path because you know the hostile context of our people, which is so recent, our context with the legal system, our context with government, uh, and these major institutions and the role that their alums have played in their history is very, very challenging. So my personal experience is one, not knowing. I mean, my parents uh, and their parents really struggled to figure out how to bring their skills into the economy, into the educational institutions that were a part of this new country that the Hawaiian people were a part of. And then figuring out law school, I mean, as on a personal level, I actually thought I would study and, con you know, math and computer science was my major. I thought I would be a technical person. Uh, one of the other effects of all this trauma I'm telling you about is that Hawaiians are way overrepresented uh, in the class of people who are indigent or suffering poverty. So, you know, that was part of my experience growing up, too. I tell people, you know, my household was rich in ideas. It was rich in tradition and culture. But that was probably the end of the richness. It was really a priority for me from a young age to figure out how could I be a part of positive change for my family and my community. And I thought that the path to that when I was a young, per young, young person was going to be technical because I just got the sense from the messages I was hearing, you know, at school and at different career kind of things that uh, that was an area where America really needed people and there were some efforts to recruit people of color and women into those. And so I thought, cool, you know, that I have a need, I've got some gifts in that area and there's a demand for it, this is it, this is perfect. And then I started to do some work in that area and discovered that there was just so much inequity and I sort of just through life experience started to connect the dots as to the relevance of the law to some of the problems that I experienced in my own life and in my community and that led me to the law. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I remember you saying in that other panel too, I think you made a comment about the number of indigenous lawyers that there are in the United States. I mean, it's not a huge group. I was very struck by that. Oh, tiny. Still, still our underrepresentation, our invisibility, our exclusion, that is absolutely a crisis today. Uh, Native people, when you include uh, American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians, or something like 3% of the country. I say something like, not because I haven't read the data, but because it's a little unclear, because a lot of data doesn't group Native Hawaiians with other Native Americans. They're a long history behind that, some of the reasons I like, some of them I don't. Um, but that makes it a little hard to say exactly what percent we are, but we're something like 3%. And so then, you know, you always hope that uh, you see that 3% represented in positions of power, leadership, um, in, in professions that are necessary for communities because that capacity is so important for them to thrive. So then you're looking for 3% in the legal profession. And instead, what you're going to find is we're one-fifth of one percent, which means we're missing thousands and thousands of Native lawyers that should be licensed, practicing, advocating for our communities, existing in all the spheres, not predominantly just in government or in the practice of Indian law, which is what you see here. Indian law is absolutely important. I currently work in Indigenous law. That's something that happened with a job change I made about a year and a half ago. But Really, one of the things that I think has made me special uh, in the years since I graduated was that I didn't do indigenous rights law because of indigenous people need all the other kinds of legal expertise. And so, you know, being uh, at times the only indigenous, not just Hawaiian, but indigenous American across Alaska Natives and Native Americans, there were times where I thought I was the only trademark specialist in the country. I later found out there's one or two, but even now, after being really concentrated on identifying those other folks so that we could form a community and start collaborating together because of some important stuff that's happening with the um, rapid evolution of technology in our world right now, uh, I'm still only found 
14 total across all the different subsections of intellectual property. So it's a challenge. I mean, could you just imagine you've got uh, over 560 plus federally recognized tribal sovereigns in this country, plus a number of others that are not federally recognized, including my own nation of Hawaii. Uh, but you've only got 14 IP lawyers. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like how that affects our ability to maintain our cultural integrity uh, and participate in this economy? I mean, my last job, the majority of what, frankly, the company sold, and it's one of the largest companies in the world, is intellectual property, you know, in the form of software uh, and eventually now services. So there's just so many deleterious effects of that situation. And that's just one segment called IP law. Like where's all the native lawyers that specialize in tax? I'm not saying there's zero, but is there enough? Certainly not. Just so many areas. So just, and just to um, explain for the listeners, um, so you, and you, you referred to it, you started your career at a large law firm, Perkins Coy. And then as you referred to, you were an IP lawyer at a large tech company at Microsoft. Um, for many years, and you had very senior roles there. So you had, in some ways, kind of a, you know, coming from a, a great law school like Columbia Law School, that that kind of looks like sort of a, a very accomplished, but, you know, traditional legal career. And then about 18 months ago, you uh, took a turn where uh, you've taken leadership at your current organization, the Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation, um, which is a public interest law firm in Hawaii, dedicated to indigenous rights. But in terms of sort of looking over your career so far, do you see a common thread running through some of the decisions that you've made and the roles that you've taken um, so far? Sure. So one of the things that I try to encourage other indigenous lawyers coming into the profession is support them, first of all, support them all up. I mean, we just need more. But when I think about my own career journey, one of the things that I try to be really creating safety around is telling them to, it's okay to have different priorities at different times in your career. So one, I will say all of those jobs were so important. Each one gave me the skills needed for the next one. So in terms of, you know, Red Thread, I I think that there is a theme um, around building competence, skills, and not just legal, but also leadership skills, gaining um, a greater awareness of my own abilities, myself, what my community needs, and doing that not just through the day job, but through all the things that being in those organizations also gave me access to in terms of other organizations that I could participate in, mm-hmm. You know, whether it be as a board member or a volunteer or through some leadership development program. Um, And then figuring out as rapidly as possible how to sort of work my way through the hierarchy of priorities that I think resonate from my cultural context, which um, these kinds of ways, frameworks for thinking about it, I think they don't necessarily resonate in all communities. And so I think Indigenous people don't frequently enough have people who talk in ways where this makes sense, but I think it resonates for a lot of Native communities, which are very community-centric, and it's Mm -hmm. all kind of always going back to your purpose and your identity as a part of a community and the different levels of that community. So you think about one of my great mentors who practices in Seattle, he's an indigenous rights lawyer, but similar to me, he didn't start indigenous rights. He started in um, a more general practice law firm. And um, he talks a lot about um, indigenous rights, human rights and kinship relationships. And he talks about the importance of kinship in our communities and sort of the fireside family, um, which I think resonates for him as a a descendant of a tribe from California. And I love that because, you know, when I think about my career choices, the thing that I want Native people to know is that, look, you know, you've got your family, you've got your fireside family. And when I thought about my, my career, I thought about all these factors. I thought about my talents. I thought about pragmatic issues around you know, resources that I needed to obtain to take care of my family, and then eventually my community, the broader community, which is not just limited to Native Hawaiians, right? And that's why it was important to me when I did my introduction to kind of frame it that way, is that, you know, there are like kind of circles where I have kinship duties and they might be prioritized, but it's never to the exclusion of everyone, anyone else, because we are all relatives. And that is a belief um, an indigenous worldview that I wish more people would adopt. But um, all of those things were about 
learning and figuring out how to make the greatest difference in the face of a world that I perceive from a young age as having a lot of problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. And well, actually, I'm curious to ask you a little bit about the organization you currently lead, the, the NHLC. Um, and building off of what you just said, I mean, one question that I had for you is, you know, how in leading that organi- organization, you decide what to focus on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, another mentor of mine often told, would often say, you know, this this organization that we both worked at at the time in this world is just a candy store of problems. So for people who like solving problems, you know, you're in the wrong place. And it was a great way to kind of flip what might feel like an overwhelming negative into a positive. Um, it can be overwhelming, right? And so where do you focus your energies? I do see that a lot. I'm the parent of a 14-year-old. Um, and I've just experienced people my own vintage and in this generation coming up, there is a little bit of anxiety I sense as to like, where do you, what is your purpose? What's your place? What should you do? Um, and, you know, at Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation, that could absolutely be a challenge for us because, you know, our mission is to perpetuate an advanced Native Hawaiian identity and culture. Uh, but that, you know, as good organizational missions do, it leaves a lot of room <laughs> for the specificity of programming to evolve and change over time. Um, and so we have to pick. Uh, so when I think about our own organization, there's some principles that are helpful. Um, one, we think about, well, what are we uniquely position to do? What is no one else going to do if we don't do it? That's really important. Um, so thinking about filling like real gaps, uh, thinking also about what does the community want? So our goal is to be in step with our community. And so it's really important for us to um, not just be, you know, heads down in individual cases and sort of cranking out legal work like it's a widget, but really being involved in what are the most pressing things affecting our community? What are they suffering the most? Or where actually to flip it in another direction? Is there you know, a lot of positive creative energy where we could be helpful and enabling of growth, of healing, of you know, advancement? So that, those are sort of the things that we keep in mind in my organization, but I also keep it in mind at a personal level. And then stepping, stepping back a minute, sort of the broader legal industry because you've had experience in all these different types of legal organizations, you know, from a large law firm, a large multinational corporation in tech. Um, now you're running a law firm yourself. Just generally speaking, I'm curious what, you know, it's it's an interesting time in, in to, to be practicing law right now. There's a lot of change going on more broadly. I'm wondering, you know, what you find to be the most interesting aspects of, of practicing law right now. You know, some of the things that keep me up when I think about the profession is uh, just hoping that people increasingly get diverse experiences. Um, I don't think that people necessarily need to go on the sort of journey I'm on. I think what's really cool about being a lawyer is that there's a million journeys you can go on, right? And that's important because there's 1.5 million lawyers in the United States. So, um, you know, good news is I think everybody can have a unique journey and they and they mostly will. Um, but getting some diversity so that we can maintain our relevance. So I think relevance is something that I don't hear lawyers talking about in a meaningful way. There seems to be this assumption that we're relevant. And for sure, we have important roles to play. But I think that bar leadership and every person as a member of a bar needs to recognize the power they have and hopefully will give to the profession and serve as a formal leader at some point in their career, which can look like, you know, committees. Um, you, you could be a bar president like me. Uh, my, some of my greatest friends as a lawyer have emerged because of work we've done together, trying to help steward the profession as volunteers um, for bar associations, which for me has not only been the National Native American Bar, I've given my time to a number of different bar associations and I always will. You know, just having frank conversations about our relevance. And part of the challenge we have with relevance is that we get too siloed. So, you know, just helping people talk about different experiences that you can have as a lawyer so that you can have a more rich experience, but also the profession can maintain its relevance by really understanding the world that we're in 
and sort of stepping away from this over-siloed, you know, people sort of doing their best to find a safe and secure spot and then just hunker down. Um, it affects, it does affect our relevance as a profession and I am worried about it. And you see that in part through the decline of engagement and membership in bar associations. But I mean, that's not the only measure, but it's it's a real thing. Yeah, and that's echoed in so many other places in our society too, right? Just a decline in memberships kind of in general, um, people getting involved in, in organizations and things. Um, you know, sort of civil society generally, I think that's been a struggle. Um, so it's very interesting to hear you talk about how important, you know, being a part of the bar associations has been to you. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, that you're the president currently of the National Native American Bar Association. Um, how did you ultimately ascend in, into the leadership of, of that? Um, and I know that's not the only organization that you're involved in, but um, how did you come to, to be the president of that group? Sure. I feel really lucky that I'm currently the president of the org. It's been a 10-year journey. So I was recruited into the org by a president, the president 10 years ago, who is Mary Smith. She's She was the secretary of the ABA a couple of years ago, and currently she's the president-elect of the ABA. So when she became secretary, that made her the first ever Native uh, officer of the American Bar Association. And now she will be the first president uh, and her year will start in August. So Mary is uh, just such a, a role model. But anyways, I was one of a number of people in my vintage that she recruited. So something that I really credit her for and I try to take with me in my work is thinking about how do you staff the people who are going to come behind you, right? Think about that pipeline. And she's very intentional about that. So that's how I got wrapped into it. And, you know, I've just been serving in different roles. Uh, some years in that 10 year period, I was more active than others, but most of the years I've been pretty active and I held different officer roles and then became president uh, in April. Congratulations. That's, and that's, of course, how I, how I first came across you uh, when you were speaking on the panel as, as the newly elected um, president. So you are uh, leading in, in all of these areas of the profession. You are running a law firm. Um, you also, as you mentioned, you're the mom of a teenager. Um, you're a woman. You're an indigenous person. The DEI kind of data and surveys that are out there suggests that, that carrying all of those roles together, you know, that can be a lonely and sometimes hard thing to do. Has that been your experience as you've been navigating the profession and, and representing these communities that you identify with? Yes, it has been. But it's funny because I didn't think about it for a long time. It's probably been just the last few years that I had enough sort of lived experience and data, meaning just the things I've been able to observe, uh, and collected enough experiences. It's through the experiences that I have collected slowly but surely, just through hopefully a life well lived so far, that I started to realize that some of these themes that you see in studies, and unfortunately for indigenous people, there's very few, but a lot of the themes that I see about women of color generally or other major ethnic and racial groups resonate. Um, I started to realize, wait, that's happening to me too, or I think that's happening to me. Uh, so, you know, I'll say that the stories have been too limited. So it's things like this, I really appreciate. Sure, because it's great for me to get that visibility, right? I mean, that's that's important when you're trying to, um, you know, influence a system. But really, what I try to do is be really brave in these uh, opportunities to share because there's so few stories, so few perspectives that shared, and that adds to the difficulty. It affects your ability to even assess whether what you're experiencing is right or not, right? So everything is relative in the human experience. There's no um, absolutes. And so the stories that you're told are how you sort of develop that frame um, about whether what you're experiencing is normal or fair or right or just. Like all of these things are relative and we're used to that in the law, right? That's one of the tools of lawyers is that you go before some decision maker and you try to draw analogies to other situations and say if that was fair then this is or if that wasn't fair this isn't either 
Um, and when you don't have examples and stories, it takes you a long time to even assess what's happening to you. What is your experience? Is this all right? You know, so I will say that, you know, finding that's also part of why I'm a big fan of creating community associations. Um, not that it's all, you know, a plug for bars, but I think that people are lonely. I think, uh, you know, women of color are struggling. I think moms are struggling. Uh, I think that, you know, there's been great stories published in, you know, national publications kind of talking about that, but I don't know that there's enough meaningful action on, you know, saying, translating that into, okay, what should we do? But I know that, you know, series like what you're doing is a step in the right direction. You know, so I would say, hey, there's lots of people have done so much work and every organization has a different plan for DEI. And, you know, we could dig into whether or not I think some of those are performative versus what's effective, you know, and it's, and it's, there's like no broad stroke. Like it's, it just depends. Um, and every community is different. Every org is different. What makes sense based on the role, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but starting first with just helping people understand that they're not alone, <laughs> sharing stories so that they can even have those points of view. Um, I mean, part of the challenge, I, I will often admit that, you know, it took me a long time to be self-proclaimed feminist or advocate for women's issues because it took me so long to realize that I was also suffering those issues. Like I literally was born in a time where all the messaging I was being served was that we live in a post-racial Right. I was born in the early 80s. I was going to public schools in the 90s in a fairly conservative state. And this is the message that I was given. And I just accepted that. And so whatever experience I had um, in ways that maybe were in some ways good because they were non-distracting, but ultimately I think bad because it's taken me too long to realize what we need and, and how I could participate in making life better. Um, it just took me a while to even realize that we were having problems, that like the things that I experienced actually weren't right. And they were just an example of a broader class issue. Um, so I really credit organizations like yours that are making the space to even just share the stories. Because right now I think people are just suffering, not even knowing if what they are experiencing is right. That's great. And that really resonates even, you know, with with me in terms of, you know, I grew up in a similar time frame. And I think it's, I experienced that. I've heard others say that too, that sometimes it takes time to realize, at least as a woman, that, that as you said, some of those things that you've been through that you just kind of brush off or that you don't think about, it's maybe later in your career or, or you know, later on that you you reframe that looking back, you know, at your, at your past and, and realizing actually, you know, this isn't right. Um, and it is through sharing stories that that you can start to to kind of connect those those themes across other people's experiences as well. Yeah, and help build allies too, right? I mean, that's part of the challenge too in the DEI space is that we were all fed that narrative, right? So I wasn't just fed it. Every person in my community was fed that narrative. And so that didn't allow us to dig into some behaviors that were inherited on all sides of this equation that were hurtful and resulting in negative outcomes, right? The exclusive outcomes. Um, and I really try to come at this work with a lot of compassion for people who have, don't know either for the same reasons I didn't know 10 years ago. And so maybe they're contributing, but that's not a, a decision they made. You know, they're just people. My mom always says this, you know, people are just people, which you're like, what does that mean? Well, I could <laughs> it. I know what she means. <laughs> she's like, she's basically saying, you know, have compassion. Um, you know, people uh, just like me just inherit these things. And we're all on a journey to figure out what our truth is. And that's something I'm really excited about, actually, um, right now with technology. There's so much discussion about how to protect ourselves from this wave of technology coming at us and all the deleterious effects that it can have. And then at the same time, as an indigenous person, as a person who's been marginalized, I see so much incredible opportunity um, to unlock and kind of close capacity gaps we've had and help us get better informed. Um, because that's been the struggle. I think for, I, I identify as a geriatric millennial. I think that's the term. And I think geriatric millennials have been on a journey most of our life trying to figure out what of the things that we were sort of quote unquote told by a narrow pipe of, you know, broadcast media and, and very narrow pipe of, you know, 
mass publications that sort of was our source of news. So I think the criticism around um, how do we do social media right and all this disaggregated sources of information right um, is important, but we have a broader pipe. And so now we can get more information. And I was going to say, Makaliga, we have to have you back on the podcast just to talk about what you've just said, <laughs> because I feel like we could talk for an hour about you know, all the issues that you've just raised, I, I would love to ask you, you know, with AI and these things that are coming out, what what the impact that's going to have on a law firm like yours, if that's, is that going to even the playing field? Is that? I mean, I, it's huge. Uh, it's important. You know, one of the things that I really worry about uh, is over pigeonholing. So as I advocate for people to craft diverse careers, which I think is important for so many reasons. I mean, we touched on the rel how it will help us to remain more relevant because we'll just be smarter about what our society needs. So the legal profession is fundamentally about service. It's about service to clients, but it's also more broadly about service to the society that we, we are a part of. Um, so helping to figure out how do you actually get into the weeds of implementing this social contract called law, right? And using that social contract to allow people at massive scale, I mean, over 300 million Americans, right, working cooperatively, despite all kinds of differences of views and backgrounds. Um, it's That's what makes the law beautiful when it works, is that it allows for that cooperation to happen, but it also can be tragic when it doesn't work. And we live that beauty and that tragedy every single day in hard to measure ways. And unfortunately, the tragedy gets brushed away too often because we have a culture of positivity, which some have called toxic. So um, figuring out, you know, how that's the special role of the lawyer, though, right, is that we're here to light up the beauty and help mitigate the tragedy when it comes to the implementation of the social contract through law. It's a good segue, the thread that we've been on into um, a couple of the questions we're trying to ask all of the guests in this series. The first one is, you know, what would you ask everyone listening to do, uh, maybe do more of or less of, to help advance women's inclusion in the legal profession? And I would ask you also, given your, your expertise and your advocacy, to also if there's anything particularly for Indigenous women. There's so many good ideas. So I'm just going to pick one. I would say for people out there, women and men, and this, I'll, I'll throw this out there for the question regarding women and indigenous people, and then for sure both. Something that I don't hear people talking about is, you know, we talk about underrepresentation in leadership. That's a very common topic in the legal profession, where we say, okay, for at least with women, we're seeing that, you know, the pipeline coming out of law school is looking even, maybe even slightly favorable towards women than men. So that feels like good progress has been made there. Um, so then you go into the associate ranks and you see, you know, I think the data is, is you know, it may, may not be all the way there, but the data looks good, which you would expect, right? If you get the pipeline out, you would expect it to launch in a fairly even way. But then, then it starts to decline. Um, and so as they start to get into, you know, middle management and senior management roles, whether you call that senior associate managing juniors or even mid-level associate, often managing um, non-attorney staff, um, which are also super important players in the industry, of course, um, or in the in-house world, you know, the, the, sim the like. Um, so there's different titles, but there's not that many of them, actually. Um, and as they get into those, they start to drop. Especially women of color especially women of color. So one, I'll, I will throw two things out there to get really concrete for people that could apply to everybody. One or the other or both will apply to everybody. Number one, if you have the opportunity to report to a woman or an indigenous person, please recognize how critical your support of that person in that role is going to be to their success. If you report to someone like that fits that identity profile and you are not supportive of them, you will be a part of the problem. So if that is the way that you generally approach new management, or if that is the way you are approaching new management because in this instance, they are different from you or whatever the biases are, 
I'm going to ask you to stretch yourself to try for a solid year in that role to just give them the benefit of the doubt. They are probably going to do things differently than other leaders. That is not a surprise. That is actually part of the point. And they might be imperfect because most people are. <laughs> but if you can give them a solid year of just voice your concerns, have a difference of opinion, do that even if you, are, you actually share their identity in that regard, right? That's totally fine. But be on their bus. Really support them. Um, that will make a huge difference because we don't talk about that enough. Then I would say on the hiring side, take a risk. Take a risk because at some level, you know, we, I think on my side of this, quote unquote, uh, there's been a lot of work, multi-generational work. I told you my historical context, right? For me to go from you know, my great grandparents suffered the loss of their rights to vote in Hawaii because a Columbia law grad teamed up with a bunch of other white businessmen from the continent. They took a they took this constitution he wrote and they put a gun to his head and said, thou shalt sign this. And then my people lost the right to vote, as did a bunch, like thousands of Asian people who had immigrated to our country and were at that point Asian Hawaiians. So then, you know, you fast forward and in 2006, I'm at that law school trying to fit in, trying to check all the boxes, because through that a roughly 100-year experience, we learned that that's what we were going to have to do, and it was going to be a multi-generational effort to achieve any kind of equity, any kind of inclusion. And so we're doing it. But waiting until there's critical mass of us, until 3% of us have overcome all of that and check all your boxes means that you're also going to be a part of the problem because it means we're not going to get there for 50, 60, 100. I mean, it's a multi-generational journey. So find stretching yourself to maybe give some credit to all the experiences and skills that we have acquired by overcoming that and asking good questions about what that is like to try to understand the true capability we bring to the table, even though we don't check all of the boxes because we don't come from this culture. We do not come from this culture. That's really important. Um, so you're gonna have to do some translating. And if you don't, it just means we're gonna keep on this journey. You know, my women of color, indigenous people, we're on the journey, right? But you got to be realistic about how long it's going to take for us to completely figure out how to live these dual cultures and achieve at these highest levels in both cultures, which is also important and we don't talk about enough. You know, we don't, I, it is not the goal of most Indigenous people to leave behind our home culture. And it is not the goal of Indigenous people to be great at the dominant culture and you know a mild participant in our home culture so also recognizing that people who are trying to be excellent in your discipline in your environment are also exerting double effort being excellent in their home culture so i have a traditional practice that takes time so we you know understanding that diversity of experience and figuring out how to take risks otherwise this is just going to take a really long time yeah, I love that because it's very practical. It's something that everybody can do. Um, and so much of it is just about who gets the benefit of the doubt in our society and in our workplaces and who who gets, you know, who takes a risk on, um, who gets have, has a risk taken on them, I guess you should say. Um, so that's fantastic. Um, lastly, very quickly, um, we also wanted to ask, just envisioning your ideal utopian universe you know what would success look like to you if we picture a legal profession that's diverse it's inclusive it's equitable how would you describe what that looks like you know what's really hard about that question although i love the question is what what i envision is a level of inclusion that is so transformative i don't think it's possible to know what the lived experience of it is because the magic that that would mean is that we are finding ways to include people with such diverse backgrounds that we have never included before that it's hard to know what will happen. All I know is that 
it will be magical. I know it is the world that I want my daughter and grandchildren to inherit. I know that what's hap we're doing right now is not working. And we know that even through westernized ways of knowing, when you measure the temperature on the planet, when you measure even just happiness, even just happiness, right? So we talk about these really, um, I don't know, seemingly scientific concepts, but also on the social level, right? It's just very clearly the data is, is, is disturbing. And there's a lot of finger pointing going on as to whose fault it is. Oh, the kids are depressed and they're committing suicides at insanely high numbers because of social media, that's the problem. It's like, okay, that feels like a little bit of a simple, it's a little simplified, right? It feels a little bit too good to be true because then it, that, that cuts towards, we'll just turn our shelf social media and all these problems go away. And I'm like, really, do we really think that's, that's what's going on? It's probably deeper than that. It's a little bit too easy, you know? So I believe that if we let that in, I'm a big believer that human humanity has been incredible. So this diversity of cultures in it holds so much knowledge because so many communities have tried so many different things, adapting to so many different pressures, natural, social, all the things. And if we can drive that inclusion, we will unlock the knowledge that all of these communities have as to how to cope with the problems that come at us today. And that's a very um, commonly spoken proverb in Hawaiian is that uh, a Hawaiian faces the world with the back towards the future and the face towards the past. And what that represents is not that we're not voyagers, because obviously we are, we have a history of being, you know, the greatest voyagers on this planet, but it's about saying that we believe that this thousands of years of lived experiences, if we look into that through both the success and failures of our kupuna and the way that they adapted, we will find the solution to the problems coming at us today. And so believing that not just for my own people on this, this you know, amazing island chain that is the most isolated center of human population on the planet. But if I, if I believe that for us, I mean, what does it mean when you unlock that for all the peoples around the world? It's incredible. It's like you literally just can't even conceive of what that would look like. Makalika, thank you so much. Really interesting to speak to you today and to share, you know, all of your insights, the, the, some of the traumas that, that your communities have experienced. Um, I'm hopeful. I think there's people who probably know very little about these issues, and I hope they will learn a lot um, from listening to this episode. The Hearing Twill Takeover, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com slash the hearing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.